started to try and build a built-in wardrobe for stuff hanging doors. Um, it was going really well until I tried to start hanging the doors. And uh, hanging doors isn't that easy. And I soon re- realized I need uh, Jeff to come around and give me help. Uh, it's true with this passage too. It's a difficult passage and we do need God's help. Um, this passage is a bit like trying to do one of those fiendish Sudokus. I don't know if you're any good at Sudoku. Uh, really, really difficult. But if you complete it or if I understand it, it can be really satisfying and helpful. So I do really pray that though this is a complicated passage, though it's quite long, and after that reading you're probably thinking, what is all that about? Uh, or perhaps even feeling my pain, saying, what am I going to do with that? Uh, God will give us help to understand it, because actually it's a wonderful passage. It's a really heartwarming passage, and really important that we can grasp the deep truths in it. So let's pray for God's help, that he would really help us tonight. Heavenly Father, your word says that the Bible is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, we don't want to stumble in darkness, not understanding what you're trying to say to us through this passage. We want to understand the deep truths in it. We want to understand how they can challenge us, but particularly how they can encourage us. So by the power of your spirit, would you help me to try and explain it clearly? And would you help all of us to learn from it and to leave here encouraged? And I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Great, we're thinking about this subject, how can I be ready? Um, Really thinking about the return of Jesus. Um, Just to help us, a bit of context to kind of get where we are. We're working through the back end chapters of Luke's Gospel. Do you remember, if you look in your Bibles, go back to chapter 20. um, Jesus is having these disputes with the religious leaders. Um, And really the point he's making is if you get Jesus' identity wrong, uh, you relate to him completely wrongly. I remember a time, a long time ago, when I was out in town shopping with a friend, and I'd been in one shop, he'd been in another, and I spotted him across the street, and being a teenager, I thought it'd be hilarious to run up to him and jump on his back, which was hilarious until I realized that it wasn't my friend. (laughs) Uh, You get someone's identity wrong, you relate to them completely wrongly. It was rather embarrassing, and the laughs were certainly not on me. Uh, Well, that's what's happening with these religious leaders. They're getting Jesus' identity completely wrong, and so they relate to him wrongly. Notice then that Jesus, off the back of that, gives a warning to his disciples in chapter 20, verse 46. Speaking about these religious leaders who outwardly are saying and doing all the right things, but their hearts have completely misunderstood who Jesus is. And all of that uh, helping of the disciples that Jesus is giving them continues into chapter 21, which we're going to look at together tonight. And then look forwards, what's going to be the next chapter... Jesus gathers with his disciples at the Last Supper. He prepares for his arrest in the garden. Uh, He's going to be betrayed. He's going to go to his death on the cross. So really, this whole passage here is preparing God's people um, for his return, for what's coming. And that's why it's a really important passage for us to look at. Uh, As I reflected on this earlier this week, I guess there are two main reasons why this sort of subject is difficult for us. The first, perhaps, is very obvious. When I say to you, uh, are you ready you're probably thinking of something in, the, in your horizon that's just a little bit away ahead. Maybe you're thinking, am I ready for work tomorrow morning? Um, maybe half an hour ago, you're thinking, am I ready for church? No, I'm not. Maybe you're having friends around for a meal. Are we ready? Is the chicken cooked? Is the table laid? Is the house clean? Maybe a little bit further in the distance, it's December the 1st, perhaps in a few months' time, quite a few months' time, and you're preparing for Christmas are you ready? And, and the countdown begins, you buy your Christmas tree and you get ready, you've got a month, and Christmas comes. 
or I guess to April, the end of the tax year, you need to get all your financial affairs in order so you can send off your tax return to the tax man. Maybe a little bit further still, it's that big wedding day, and maybe a year ahead or so, you're preparing for it. Ollie and Natalie have recently been doing this, and they're thinking about a year away, and it seems a long way away, but then it rushes around really fast. Maybe you're preparing to move house, and perhaps the biggest horizon, the furthest thing that we spend time thinking about might be the future. Maybe a pension, if we're younger and working, uh, writing a will, perhaps, preparing for what will happen when one day we're not here. But that's something we don't spend much time thinking. When, when, we, when I use the word ready, most of us will be thinking about something that's probably not very far away at all. That's why this passage is challenging, because what Jesus does is he kind of broadens the disciples' horizons so that their understanding of that word ready is far more than their blinkered understanding of what's just ahead. He's helping them to think about something far in the future that is far more important. Second reason why this passage particularly is quite challenging is if you want to do some thinking and reading, uh, theological reading on this subject of Jesus' return, you'll pick up some theological books, difficult words like eschatology, that's really referring to the end times. Um, you'll read of really complex things like pre-millennialism, amillennialism, post-millennialism. Now, most of you will say, what is all that? Don't worry. But these are the sort of things that will be in books, and they'll just blow your mind. What is all that about? And you'll read things in, in Revelation chapter 20 that refer you to Daniel and the, uh, the abomination that causes desolation. You're like, what is all this about? It can be a really difficult subject, speaking about the return of Christ. And... Uh, that's going to be another reason why we perhaps just sort of think, well, I don't want to think about it because my, my mind can't get around all of that. So let's just concentrate on today. But actually, this passage, as I said earlier, is a really heartwarming one. It's a hugely important one. We're going to look at three things in it and then drive home a few applications off the back of that. Um, the first thing we're going to look at is how can we be ready? And one of the answers this passage gives is that you and I will be ready for Jesus' return if we're trusting in the true Savior. Just have a look at the passage to verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. This is referring to the temple in the heart of Jerusalem. The temple that begun to be built by King David was completed by his son Solomon. An enormous construction of great ornate beauty. Um, If you can notice on this little picture, I'll just try and show you with the clicker. This is a picture of Jerusalem, and round the outside here, you've got the wall round Jerusalem, okay? And this complex here, in the top right corner, is the temple and the wall around it. Do you notice that the temple and its perimeter takes up about a sixth of the whole city? So this temple was hugely significant to Jerusalem and to its people. It played an absolutely massive role in the life of God's people. Here's a sort of uh, scale mock-up of the temple and you can see its beauty ivory and white stone precious stone overlaid with gold and precious jewels this building was really really impressive so obviously the disciples are looking at this very impressive symbol in the heart of jerusalem and they're saying to jesus isn't it amazing but notice what he says because he really challenges them verse six jesus said as for what you see here The time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Try and get into the shoes of a Jewish person who's living in Jerusalem, and this temple is at the heart of the city. It represents, it symbolizes God's presence in his city with his people. 
And everyone can see the temple. And the temple is what so much of the culture of the time revolves around. When Jesus says that it's going to be torn down, can you imagine the shock? We can't really get our heads around that. It would be something like uh, someone saying, uh, how's the parliament going to be destroyed? We don't need them anymore. Perhaps you don't think we need them, but they're beautiful. Um, it's a beautiful building. It represents the kind of heart of the city of London. And uh, um, Parliament stood in our country for so many years. Or maybe even this church, which is so precious to us as a physical building. If someone just said it's all going to be ripped down, it would be a shock to us, wouldn't it? Because this is the place where we gather. But what Jesus is doing is he's challenging his disciples because he's really asking them a question. Disciples, where does your true security lie? Notice back in chapter 20. Do you see Jesus had described himself as being the cornerstone, but the cornerstone that would be rejected. And then you read in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, you also, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house. Jesus is talking about the physical temple is going to be destroyed and then a different temple is going to be rebuilt, not out of stone, but out of people. Jesus Christ would be the cornerstone and around him would be all the other bricks that build up God's home, his place, you and I. These disciples were very impressed with the outward grandeur of the temple. That is often where their security lay. As long as the temple's here and we're doing our worship then we'll be fine with God. But so many of their hearts had run far from God. And so here, where Jesus talks about tearing down the temple, he's, really, he's challenging where it is that his disciples are really putting their trust. Are they putting their trust in the religious systems? Or are they putting their trust in him? We have to ask that question of this beautiful building, of the programs and all the busyness of what we're doing. Brilliant things, but that is not where we're to put our hope. They're just vehicles for doing God's work. And this is a real challenge to me. The day that truth is no longer preached from this pulpit and the day that grace isn't shown and experienced amongst us in this church is the day where this church is pointless. It's a real challenge for us. Where is our security lying? Are we trusting in our saviour? Or are we just trusting in stuff and being busy and going through religious motions? But friends, we can be ready for Christ's return if we're trusting in the true Saviour. And that's part of what Jesus is trying to help his disciples to see here. The second thing he sees, though, in this passage is he helps us to see that you and I will be ready for Jesus' return if we're listening to the true teacher. Do you notice verse 7? The disciples say, teacher, they asked, when will all these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? I think the interesting word there is when, because really the disciples are missing the point completely. Jesus has just sort of dropped this great bombshell on them. The temple's going to be destroyed. And their first thought is, when? And they're so then concerned about the time, they're forgetting the actual implication of what Jesus is saying. And so he replies, verse 8, watch out so that you are not deceived. I've got a list here of... Um, a number of different predictions that people have made through history about when Jesus would return. It's a pretty long list. It's nearly as tall as I am. There's one prediction in 500 AD. One prediction was based on the dimensions of Noah's Ark. Someone was convinced that there was code in the dimensions of Noah's Ark to help us to know when Jesus returns. Crazy. 
Uh, this chap here, Michael Stifel, he was a mathematician. He calculated that Judgment Day would begin at 8 a.m. on the 19th of October, 1533. I'm not sure his calculations were correct. Uh, even the great John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, who wrote a number of hymns and was a great preacher, he foresaw that the millennium would come and Jesus would return by the 17th century, uh, by, the 19th, uh, by 1836. Uh, that didn't happen. There's a funny one down here. This one really got me amused. Right down here, 1988, Edgar C. Wiesnant. He published a book, and it was entitled 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. I don't suppose that was a bestseller. And then it goes on, lots of future predictions. But this is people's attempts to try and understand when Jesus will return. And it's a pretty long list. And maybe the disciples were trying to sort of compile their own list. They were getting very caught up on when is it all going to happen. But Jesus wants to say to them, there's something far more important than when. Have a look at verse 8. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Here's the demonstration of it. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. We get in all sorts of problems when we see an earthquake on the news and go, Jesus must be returning, there's an earthquake. There have been earthquakes for millennia. The point Jesus is making with these different things here is that these indications are not so much indications of the time, but more of the certainty that he will come back. So when you witness these great calamities in a broken world, they're meant to be God waking us up, helping us to see that one day he will return. And so we don't need to be like these people here who are fretting about when, because remember that reading from 1 Thessalonians at the beginning of the service? We do not know the hour or time. Instead of worrying about when, Jesus wants us to be much more concerned about the question, will I be ready? And he says here, you and I will be ready if we're trusting in the true teacher, listening to his voice, not getting hung up over the latest fad of when he's going to come back, but listening to his voice and seeking to be obedient to him now until he returns. And then the third thing you see in this passage, you and I will be ready if we stand firm in God's grace. Do you notice in verses 12 to 16, Jesus paints a picture saying that for the disciples, the kind of perspective of getting ready for the future is going to be very countercultural, and it may well cost them. He said here in verse 15, sorry, verse 12, it will be on account of my name that you may struggle and face persecution. Verse 17, everyone will hate you, because of me. You know, if we spend our lives preparing for the future, if we don't get comfortable believing that this earth is our home and we're actually preparing for a home to come, that will be so different to the world around us that's just living for here and now and trying to squeeze as much pleasure and comfort out of today as is ever possible. Now, it may be that you choose to forgo certain pleasures now because you know that you'll enjoy all of them in heaven. Not that you can't enjoy pleasures now, but sometimes being a Christian will make those demands on us. I don't have to have this now or this experience now because I know I'll have it in the future. And it'll be even better than I could ever experience it now. Or think about what it's like if you're trying to prepare other people for the future. If you're trying to shake people out of their apathy 
and say, have you thought about your death? Remember Noah? He was warning God's people or the people on the earth about the coming judgment. What did they do? They just laughed at him. Perhaps preparing for the future can isolate you. It can isolate you from your family. I remember a time when uh, we went back to school for a reunion and all the, my mates were around me and we gathered and we were talking about, oh, what are you doing with your life now? As a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist, a surgeon, lots of impressive things. And then it got to me, what are you doing? Oh, I'm a pastor of a local church. And it kind of killed the conversation. <laughs> oh, really? It was almost like they were saying, you did quite well at school. Is that the best that you could have achieved? And that was their perspective, a complete waste. But notice here, if you are facing persecution and difficulties, if preparing for the future means you do have a different perspective to the world around you and you feel isolated, you feel alone, notice the great uh, encouragement in verse 13, that though we may face pressures for being ready, we will bear testimony to him. That is the great privilege of being a Christian. And sometimes persecution gives us opportunity to witness for him. But there is great encouragement in verse 18, Whatever comes your way as you prepare for the future, not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Maybe you'll be socially rejected for having a different perspective and using this life to prepare for the next. Perhaps you'll be physically rejected. Some are even martyred for having that belief. But when it comes to eternal harm, if you're trusting in Jesus, he says never. You can never be harmed. You are totally and utterly secure. Just ask Jeff if he could read a few words from the end of Romans chapter 8. We refer to these a lot, but I think they're wonderful. This is Paul exclaiming the great hope that we have that nothing can snatch us from his hands. 38 and 39. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Aren't they wonderful words? We, did, we, we could get caught up in when's Jesus going to return and get caught up in all this scholarship that just boggles our mind, but actually this passage is really simple. God is simply saying to us, you and I will be ready if we're trusting in the true saviour if we're listening to the true teacher and if we're standing firm in God's grace. They're really simple truths and they're wonderful truths. And they are truths that give us complete and utter confidence in death. We don't need to fear death if we're trusting in Christ. But let's take all this a little bit further because later in the passage it gets a little bit more complicated. I want us to see why would these truths have been so important to the disciples and then why are they so important for us? Let's think about the disciples. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. It's kind of the early 30s AD. Forty years later, the Roman emperor was a guy called Titus and he laid siege to Jerusalem and he marched into Jerusalem with a great army. And he marched into the Holy of Holies, that place in the temple that only one man, the high priest, could go, and only once a year. And he puts his Roman standard in the Holy of Holies to say, this is Roman territory, not your God. Perhaps that's the abomination that causes desolation that, that Daniel was talking about. Well, many of these disciples will have been alive, perhaps much older people, and if not them, definitely the next generation. 
And verse 20 talked about this happening, didn't it? Jesus is predicting what's going to happen. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you'll know that its desolation is near. Let those who live in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter that city. What Jesus is saying is that there's going to be a day in the future where my city, Jerusalem, is going to become an object of my wrath because the people who should know me have broken my covenant and they've forgotten what this temple is all about. It's about a relationship with the living God and they've forgotten all of that. So I'm going to destroy it. And God, through the Romans, did that in AD 70. The temple was flattened. Verse 22, for this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be for those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Why? Because in the day of a war or a siege, these will be the most vulnerable. There'll be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They'll fall by the sword and will be taken prisoners to all the nations. This siege that the Romans laid on Jerusalem was terrible. Historians record that probably over 4,000 people were killed. Why was this news that Jesus was speaking so important to the disciples then? Because if they were alive when that happened 40 years later, it was only those who were trusting in the true saviour and listening to the true teacher and standing firm in God's grace who would have hope. Because where's their temple gone? It's flattened. Do they have hope? Yes, if they're trusting in the things we've been thinking of. Jesus is speaking these words to encourage his disciples just before he goes to his death. But why are these truths so important for us? Do you remember this uh, very bad diagram I sketched out when doing the Isaiah series? What it tries to illustrate is that when it comes to prophecy in the Bible, there's multiple levels of fulfillment. So in this diagram, uh, Isaiah would make a prediction, a prophecy about the future, and it was partially fulfilled in a future time, when in this case the exiles returned from exile in Babylon, but it was also later fulfilled in the return in Jesus coming and dying on the cross. And it's also preparing for a future date when Christ would return. So a prophecy today can have multiple levels of fulfillment. So you take that more complicated diagram, take it a very simple one, really referring to this passage here. Jesus is speaking in AD 30, and he's speaking about a day in the future. Something's going to happen, AD 70. The Romans are going to march into Jerusalem, flatten the temple. Are you ready? Who are you trusting? But he's also speaking at a different level about a future date, not when the temple will be destroyed, but when Christ would return again to bring judgment on the whole earth. And that's where verse 25 becomes a shift in our passage, because though it is a continuous passage, in verse 25, Jesus' horizon jumps from AD 70 to a future time. And then he says, there'll be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish, perplexity, at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now again, Jesus is not predicting when this will happen. (coughs) What he's saying is, will you be ready? I want you to notice two verses with the same word in it. Verse 20 speaking to his disciples, when to see Jerusalem being surrounded. And then when he's speaking of the future, verse 27, at that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. What is Jesus doing? 
He was saying to his disciples, when the Romans come and destroy the city, you'll see it. The destruction will be terrible. And in that future date, when Christ returns, when I come back, he says, you'll see that too. You won't miss him. That's why I love that word in Philippians chapter 2. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And friends, that is the point of this little fig tree illustration that comes in verse 29. It says here, he told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. We're kind of in that season now, aren't we? The trees are beginning to bud. The flowers are beginning to come up. What is it a sign of? That spring is on its way. And what Jesus is saying here is that that judgment in Jerusalem in AD 70 and the judgment that's going to come, there are lots of signs to say that it's going to come. Are you ready? And the big question for us is, will we be ready? It's a very visible thing and nobody will miss Jesus returning. That's what's so wonderful. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. I was in Morocco in 2007 with a friend traveling. And we went to visit the second biggest mosque in the whole world. Uh, Only second to the mosque in Mecca. It's enormous, this mosque. Uh, This particular mosque was called the Armchair of Allah. And it was right on the coast. And um, I went on a bit of a visit and... There's a big, I mean, it's a multi, multi million pound construction, and there's a big um, movable roof. So when the Muslims are praying to Allah, they can open up the roof, and at Ramadan, they can see the stars, and it helps them think about how great their God is to them. And I remember sitting at this, outside this great armchair of Allah, and it is the most amazing building. St. Paul's Cathedral will be eaten up inside this building, it was huge. But then I remember these words from Philippians chapter 2 one day, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And though it broke my heart to see thousands of Muslims pouring into this mosque, it was hugely encouraging to know that one day every single one of them will bow their knee to Jesus. And the great armchair of Allah will be flattened and it will be the armchair of Jesus Christ. It was actually a wonderful day to witness it. Just want to, before we close, just want to take you to verse 32. Um, this is a bit of an aside, but if you uh, do a bit of thinking and reading on this, this verse might confuse you. So I just wanted to stop and help you with it a little bit. It says, verse 32, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Now, if you read that, you're probably thinking, well, then everything I've been explaining to you is wrong. If this generation is going to see all this, then it can't possibly be referring to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and it can't be referring to this future day because I'm not going to see that. I won't be alive then. Uh, It's a complete minefield, this, and you can read hundreds of books on this subject. But the word generation has all sorts of different interpretations in the Bible, but I really believe here it almost certainly refers to the disciple that Jesus is speaking to in the moment who then represent all disciples who are going to come in the future. But the point Jesus is making is that you can have complete certainty that Jesus will return. That's what he's making. Here's a little paraphrase of that verse. Sometimes a paraphrase isn't very helpful because it can be a bit loose, but actually here it's very helpful. Jesus says of this verse, don't brush this off. I'm not just saying this for some future generation, but for this one too. These things will happen. So what he's saying to his disciples is, 
Jesus is going to come back. It's, not, it's going to be in the future, but just because it's in the future doesn't mean you mustn't think about it today. It will happen. Are you ready? And the same is true for you and I. It's a future date. We don't know when. We may not be alive when it happens. But it will happen. And so Jesus is asking us, will we be ready? And we can have complete confidence in the words Jesus is speaking. Notice verse 33. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So I want to encourage you as we close, if you're preparing for the future, if your perspective in living today is more focused on the future, which it should be, and which we all need to help each other for it to be, we'll stick out in our world because we won't be living just for pleasure and security now. But Jesus says his words will never pass away. And if you're preparing for the future, you're preparing for the right thing. Why is that assurance so important for us? Firstly, it's really important because it gives us complete and utter security as a believer. Some people are very worried about death. That's understandable to be worried about death, but Jesus wants to give us assurance. Yes, there was a picture of complete destruction of the temple in this passage. And there was a picture of the future judgment of God, which will be complete judgment and destruction for those who don't know Christ. That should be a a reality check for us, that if Christ returns, people who don't know him will lose everything. When I start to think about people I know and love for whom at the moment that is true, it really, really shakes me. But just as that truth is very real, the flip side, which encourages us, is also very real, that those who are trusting in him will gain everything. And why does Jesus speak these words to his disciples? Because he's about to leave them, and their temple is going to be destroyed, and he is going to leave them. And they're thinking there's no hope. And he says, yes, there is hope, because you're trusting in the true saviour. You're listening to the true teacher. You're standing firm on God's grace. That's what verse 36 is all about. Able to stand before the Son of Man. And you and I are able to stand before the Son of Man only by grace. Didn't Wellesley touch on this this morning? Where he said that grace is all of God. And that is where our assurance lies. When we die, our total security comes because we're trusting in the one who's already beaten death. But the other reason that this assurance of all that Jesus is saying is true matters so much is because he is hoping that it will stir us to ask this question, am I ready? Verse 34, he says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down on carousing drunkenness and the anxieties of life. Come and that day will close in on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. So be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. I'll close with some words from J.C. Ryle. He says this, The servant of God must surely see that there is only one state of mind which is the state of mind of the person who really believes these things. He's referring to this passage. He says this, that state is one of perpetual preparedness to meet Christ. The gospel doesn't call on us to retire from earthly callings or to neglect the duties of our stations. It doesn't bid us to retire like hermits 
or live a life like a monk or a nun. But it does bid us to live like men and women who expect their Lord to return. Repentance towards God. Faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And holiness of life. These are the only true habits of those who prepared to meet their saviour. The Christian who knows these things by experience is the one who is ready to meet their Lord. I really pray that we'll be a church that will continue to help each other be ready for Jesus' return because it's going to be a wonderful day. Amen.